It is my pleasure to welcome three of my colleagues from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia's Division of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Kerry Cohn and Dr. Alex Vinograd are both attending physicians in the emergency department, and Prakriti Gill is one of our Global Health Fellows. Welcome back, listeners, to the Children's Hospital Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I want to first welcome our thousands of listeners here in the United States. But most importantly, I want to welcome our thousands of listeners overseas. We are now heard in over 60 countries, and this episode on global health will feature many of those countries where our listeners reside. So welcome, Alex, Prakriti, and Kerry to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Thanks, Bob. It's so nice to be here. As you all know, there are many charitable organizations that you probably work with. And I did a little research before this podcast, and I found an organization which I'm sure is very near and dear to your heart and my heart and relates to global health. And that organization's name is Good360. Any of you heard of that organization? Uh-oh, I'm getting befuddled looks. Let me tell you a little about that organization. During every Super Bowl, and we just had the Super Bowl a few months ago, fans spend millions of dollars on merchandise to celebrate their team's birth into football's marquee event. And after the game, they actually spend a lot more money on paraphernalia and merchandise for the winning team. But no matter how much the fans are willing to shell out, Football fans won't be able to get their hands on one particular set of commemorative gear. What gear is that? It's the championship apparel for the team that loses the Super Bowl. That's because officials of the National Football League follow strict protocols to make sure that unused shirts, unused hoodies and hats are properly properly collected and kept out of public view. What happens to all this? The NFL closely works with the organization I mentioned, Good360, to donate the merchandise from the Super Bowl's losing team. What they do is they partner with international organizations to identify communities, to identify children that are in need of clothing. Now, the NFL can be very confident that the apparel will not end up getting sold as novelty items. Why is that? Because the Good360 Network distributes the products directly to the people in need. These goods are never sold, bartered, or exchanged. And believe it or not, this not only happens in football, but this happens with the World Series. So, I'm just going to throw one more question out at you. Have any of you ever seen Super Bowl t-shirts in the countries that you go to of the team that did not win the Super Bowl. Carrie, ever see any of those shirts? Uh, I have to say I've never specifically seen incorrect Super Bowl shirts, but I certainly have seen a lot of American T-shirts that um, they tend to call Kennedys um, in the developing world. So um, now I'm going to have to be on the lookout for those. Great. All right, Alex, let's start with you. I want to ask each of you, all of you are emergency medicine physicians. All of you have spent much of your career involved in global health. Let's start off, give our listeners an anecdote or an experience, maybe one of your favorite experiences or one that stands out uh, in your global health world. Alex? 
So I spent two years working in rural Rwanda with Partners in Health. And my second year there, I was charged with opening the neonatal care unit in a rural hospital in Butaro Hospital, which is a district hospital two and a half hours north of Kigali, which is an hour and a half of which is on a dirt road. And the nurses and I had to teach, learn alongside of each other to figure out how to work the baby warmers and the, the pumps and to learn the neonatal protocols. And my last week there, I walked into the NICU and one of the nurses presented a baby to me and he said something along the lines, this is a 33 and four seventh weekers presenting after a C-section due to whatever reason the baby was delivered early. And I have checked the glucose and sent to CBC and started antibiotics and started fluids. And these are the baby's last vital signs. And I looked at this nurse and I thought, like, my work here is done. I was just so proud that these nurses had learned how to use all of these equipment and figured out the protocols. And my whole goal of being there was to train um, physicians and nurses on how to better care for children. And it just felt like I had I had been really successful. It's a nice success story to share with our listeners. Prakriti, how about you? Sure. Um, I was in the Dominican Republic um, just this past fall. And as part of that rotation, I spent some time in kind of a rural area in Consuelo in the Dominican Republic, where CHOP has actually had this like really longstanding, incredible partnership with a clinic called Niños Primeros en Salud. And actually, one of my favorite memories from that trip wasn't necessarily in the clinical setting. It was actually accompanying the nurse and the community health promoter um, or the promotora on their home visits. And this is such a unique opportunity to kind of go out into the community and see the kind of home environment that the patients were living in to really truly understand where some of those challenges to access to care really come from. And the job of the promotora and the nurse was really to go and deliver these like nutrition packets as part of the large, you know, program that CHOP has had established with Niños Primeros en Salud. So that was definitely a really incredible um, experience for me. Great, Prakriti. Thank you for sharing that with us. Carrie. As the most senior member of our panel, you probably have many, many experiences. Talk to us about one or two of your uh, most interesting or most fascinating ones overseas. Yeah. So, um, gosh, there, there really are so many, and and I'm, I'm sure it is for everyone else here. But I think, you know, for me, I want to take you guys back to maybe the place for me where it all, all started. When I was a first year medical student, I had already loved to travel, but I spent my first summer in in rural Ghana. And for any of you that know me, I'm an avid runner. And one of the things that I love to do is run wherever I am traveling in the world, because I feel like I really get to see the country, the people and that kind of stuff. And so um, there was a little boy around eight years old, his name was Courage, and he had flip flops that were not in great condition. And he would come running with me every single day, and basically outrun me in his flip flops as I'm huffing and puffing in my Nikes and like, you know, New Balance shirt and shorts. And so I'm spending the summer there. He's my running partner. And one day I go into the hospital and he's there in one of the hospital beds. And the attending physician that I'm working with says, oh yeah, this little boy, he's coming in with rabies. And he was bitten by a dog a couple of months ago. And now he's showing signs of rabies. And for three days, I watched this poor child die of one of the most terrible diseases that I've ever seen. And I was crushed, still am crushed so many years, basically decades later at this point. And for me, that was really this epiphany that I needed to do something more, that there were medications, there were vaccines, right, that 
maybe if something had been done sooner, this could have been prevented and that I needed to really like spend my life trying to make this better and make things um, more equitable for people like courage. That's my starting story. That's a touching story. And now I could see, uh, Carrie, why you sort of pursued this field and are so uh, passionate about it. All three of you are emergency medicine physicians, as are most of our listening audience, either physicians, nurses, techs in the field of ER. Alex, why does the field of ER or pediatric ER lend itself to the field of global health? Are there things that overlap? Why are we as ER doctors sort of maybe the best type of practitioner to sort of go overseas and help these people in the countries that we're going to talk about? So when I first worked internationally, I worked in Rwanda and I trained in internal medicine and pediatrics. And I chose to do the combined residency program because I knew I wanted to work internationally. And I thought it would prepare me to see all of the patients who would come through the door. And then working in Rwanda, I realized a lot of the skills that I needed were skills that were really things that emergency medicine doctors learned. I needed to know how to sedate children for fractures. I needed to know how to intubate people who came in with trauma or severe respiratory distress. I needed to know how to set fractures. I needed to know how to do procedures. Um, so I came back to do a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine because I felt like those were the skills I really needed. And some days, even when I sit in the CHOP ER, I think it does feel a little bit like global health. Like you never know what's going to come in. It could be anything. You have often no notice um, and you're just prepared for anything that comes in at all times. Parakrithi, you're on the other end of that spectrum. You just completed your training in pediatric emergency medicine. And now you are continuing your training doing a global health fellowship. What do you think prepared you during your fellowship to pursue the global health additional training? Sure, that's a great question. I think just in the ER, all of us working there, we're just really good at like rolling with the punches. Like it's just really like not a lot ends up surprising us. We're always expecting the unexpected. We're kind of ready to take on any challenges that come through the door. And I think that's kind of what makes emergency medicine exciting and then also global health exciting. It's like you kind of just like go in with the best of intentions and you're going in to learn, you're going in to kind of um, build partnerships with individuals in different countries. Um, and I think it just makes it such an exciting experience because, you know, that's what emergency medicine is, is you never know what's going to walk through the door, but you're going to take care of it with your team. Great. Carrie, what would you like to add? Um, I think I echo everything um, that my colleagues have just said. And, you know, I, the other piece of it is that, you know, now over the last like 10 to 20 years, global health has really developed into a subspecialty. Um, and when I was initially pursuing my training, it was really about piecing together what would make me a good global health physician and just the flexibility, the ability to take on anything that came in through that front door, be it an, an adult with an MI or someone in labor or a child with severe malaria and, um, and having the skills to be able to put in those lines and do whatever those children needed. And so, so that's kind of how I ended up here, kind of similar to everyone else um, in this forum. Many of our listeners may not understand completely the work that you do, the services that you provide internationally. So I have sort of a, a, an interesting question. I want to get all of your input. When you go overseas, okay, are you going to start a specific program? Are you targeting one specific disease? Is it one trip to the country and then you're done? Or is it a longitudinal program? So again, in your experiences, I'm sure each of you have probably done all of those different things. But what do you feel has been the biggest impact when you go overseas? 
Is it one specific program focusing on one disease? Is it setting something up so that in perpetuity, the residents of that country will benefit from a health standpoint? And again, Alex, we'll start with you. When I reflect back on all the different global health programs I've worked in, the ones that are most successful are the ones that promote education and sustainability. The work that I did in Rwanda, where I lived for the majority of two years, my job was not to take care of patients directly, but was to accompany local nurses, general practitioners, medical students to take care of patients there. And that meant when I left, that those clinicians were stronger clinicians because um, we had worked alongside of each other. And so when I think about global health work, I don't think it means that um, Carrie or Prakriti or I have to go somewhere for a long time, but I think we really need to be thoughtful about what we're going to do and how what the impact of what we do is going to be long-term. Great. Prakriti, tell us again, again, early in your training, uh, but again, have been overseas numerous times. Tell us a little bit about some of the programs you're involved with. Are they to focus on one disease, focus on one country, or like Alex said, are you leaving some kind of education there so that the program that you started is sustainable? Yeah, no. Um, So as part of my fellowship here, the Acute Care Global Health Fellowship, of which Alex is my program director, um, you know, it's kind of a great introduction, um, kind of like a nice deep dive into global health. Um, So as part of that, like I mentioned before, I spent um, two months in the Dominican Republic, um, kind of exploring um, global health in different settings in rural, um, kind of urban and then larger city settings, ending at the Hospital Infantil de Robert Reed Cabral, um, which is the very large children's hospital in Santo Domingo. Um, And part of that was really just more about like learning about global health, really getting my feet wet. Um, I was in more of an observational role there, um, kind of just learning about healthcare delivery in different settings in the Dominican Republic. Next up, actually, I'm heading to Botswana, which is another place where um, there's the Botswana-UPenn partnership. And there I'm hoping to have more of a clinical role where I'll actually be taking on patient care and kind of obviously like learning from our partners there. Carrie, you have vast experience. I think our listeners would enjoy one specific experience that I know you have shared with me. I've heard you lecture on that. And that is from the book, The Hot Zone, your experience with the Ebola virus. Carrie, share some of those anecdotes with our audience. Oh, my. Um, Where to start? So a little bit different from the book. Um, I volunteered um, during um, the Ebola outbreak in West Africa with Médecins Sans Frontières um, and was working in Sierra Leone in a town called Bwake in an Ebola management center, which is basically a hospital for patients with Ebola. Um, And um, I think, you know, this was a very challenging experience for a lot of reasons. First of all, um, because unlike uh, working in a war zone, we were up against um, a different kind of threat, a threat that we couldn't see, and a threat that was highly, highly dangerous, right? So, um, you know, we, we worry about infectious disease specifically in the context of like for example, our, the COVID pandemic that we're in the midst of right now. But if you make one small mistake with Ebola, you know, there's a very, very high mortality rate. And that's very frightening. Um, and and so, um, so it was very, very challenging to be up against this thing that we couldn't see, want to provide care for patients, adults and children who were very, very ill, and be limited 
as a physician thinking about the patients in front of me by a lot of these biohazard precautions that were absolutely essential for us to take. We didn't have electricity in the middle of the night. We were in our full PPE in very hot weather. And so we would only have about 30 to maybe 60 minutes in this PPE to provide care for the entire three wards of the hospital. And um, and you'd have to go in and kind of do what you could with the time that you had and get back out of there before you passed out. Um, and so doing that and trying to um, think about, is it safe for me to try to put an IV in this patient in the middle of the night with no electricity? when I'm in this full PPE and can't really see anything? Or does that risk of me possibly sticking myself and not being able to in the future help anybody else because I've now caught Ebola, um, is that worth it or not? And for me as a physician, that was very, very challenging to, um, to really basically be told, you need to wait to the morning to put that IV in that child who might die overnight. There was a lot of death. There were also, a lot of people that survived, and I really counted each and every one of those lives, you know, and held them very close to my heart. This was um, really a crisis for these three nations that that were involved, and really kind of brought out for me a lot of the local culture and politics that kind of goes into the response to such a terrible epidemic such as this. On a positive note, I would say, having worked internationally really extensively, this was the first time in my life that I really saw a great interagency cooperation. The International Red Cross worked really well with the World Health Organization, with the Minister of Health, with Médecins Sans Frontières, to really try to contain the virus, to give support to the patients that needed it, and try to get over get these nations over this epidemic um, with the least um, number of casualties as possible. And for me, that was really moving to see all of these agencies and these communities come together because it wasn't just these agencies actually, but local local communities. And one thing that always kind of comes back to me is um, some of the local chiefs, when they were kind of engaged to try to help stop the spread of Ebola, they made a pact together to say if there was anybody that was holding a patient in secret that had Ebola, a family member um, in their community um, in secret without bringing them to the hospital to help try to contain this disease, that they would un undergo a public flogging. Um, and 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 so I, I really you know kind of laugh at that a little bit, but like for me that was like really a, a sign of of leadership um, to kind of come together and say, listen community, this is really important. Bring the people that are sick to get healthcare treatment and stop stop the spread of this disease. Um, so anyway, I'll let you go from there. <laughs> uh, a great segue, Carrie, from the endemic of Ebola to obviously what we're living through now and hopefully on the tail end, and that's the pandemic of COVID. Alex, obviously we've all changed and learned from COVID over the last few years. How has COVID impacted or changed the role of global health, either during COVID or now, hopefully, as we see numbers of patients decrease, I think you'll be back in these countries that are in need of you. So tell us how COVID, what lessons you learned from COVID and how has it changed global health today and in the future? 
I, I think COVID has taught us so many lessons, um, I guess some for the better. One of the things I think that all of us in the United States learned is we we learned what it was like to experience the shortages here. I have worked in a number of countries where masks or equipment is limited, but this was the first time I'd experienced the rationing in the United States where I had to think about whether I threw out my N95 or if I brought it home again and reused it. And we all put our N95s in paper bags labeled with our names and stored them for days and recycled them, which was something that none of us had done before. And I think that really is an important lesson to us that we waste a lot here and we have an abundance of material in the United States and working abroad, I have felt that shortage um, acutely so many times. I think the other opportunity that COVID has shown us is the opportunity for telemedicine. I think COVID made telemedicine something that was okay here in the United States that was actually encouraged. Um, and we were able to have conferences over Zoom and see patients over Zoom or other platforms. And I think making it okay here made it feel like it was more okay to do that internationally as well. So we've been able to provide um, teaching conferences with colleagues abroad that maybe they otherwise wouldn't have had access to. I acted as the remote pediatric program residency director for a program in Vietnam. And though I've been to Vietnam multiple times, um, I this role was mostly served over Zoom. And I gave lectures over Zoom at very odd times of the day and night um, to my residents and feel like a very special bond with them um, and can't wait to go to Vietnam in person to see them. I think it's also... Carrie and I have also seen how it um, impacts the other work that we do. Carrie and I run a research project in Liberia looking at caustic soda, which is lye or Drano. And in Liberia, um, caustic soda is bought in a white powder in, a mar in markets and used to make soap. Um, and when I was working in Liberia, um, I, oh, I've worked in Liberia multiple times. The first time I worked there, I had two children die of caustic soda ingestion in two days. And the second time I worked in Liberia, there was a child on a board of 20 children with caustic and soda ingestion at all times. And so Carrie and I had worked with li our Liberian partners, two um, pediatricians and a nurse to start a, a research project looking into how to prevent caustic soda use. And that program was put on hold for months and months um, because of COVID. So I think the impacts of COVID have been both negative and that research and patient care have been impacted widely, both internationally and here, but also some of the positive lessons we've learned about telemedicine and sharing more globally. Excellent points, Alex. Property, lessons learned from COVID? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Alex. I think in many ways, COVID has kind of been like this great equalizer because we did, we finally like, you know, saw what it was like to have to be scrounging for PPE and trying to figure out like, how long can you really wear that N95 that previously you would just toss after one TV or possible TV patient. Um, so I think it definitely made you kind of like recognize like, yeah, that there's um, there's some inequities um, that exist kind of throughout and in some ways it kind of made you really understand what maybe colleagues in other areas um, have learned to like experience and live with and not be as inconvenienced by. I think there's actually something interesting to be said. I am um, starting to work with some colleagues um, who were looking at kind of the mental health piece of um, healthcare workers during COVID. And it's kind of interesting because um, they were expecting to find a lot of like depression and anxiety. And one of the things that's kind of been emerging is this idea of resilience. 
Um, is it possible that if you have learned to live with certain resources not always being available and learned to live with certain adverse outcomes that have just kind of been your daily life, but you still find it in yourself to feel motivated about the work that you're doing, you find it in yourself to still go out there and put your best foot forward and take care of your patients in the best way possible, you maybe really were the most well prepared for this pandemic and you were the most like um ready to kind of accept the new life as it was. And I think it's kind of interesting, right? Because COVID in many ways became a problem of the developed world. It became a huge issue in the US, in Canada, in the UK, in the in Europe. Um, maybe because we, we really have um not experienced this type of shortage and this type of kind of scrounging for essential materials um, before. And does that make us less resilient? Um, that is a question that we will have to answer moving forward. Uh, that, that puts things into perspective, Prakriti. I think we're used to seeing these diseases on the world news happening in other countries. And like you said, it hit pretty close to home. Kerry, COVID perspective? Uh, I think the other thing I would add would be um, how COVID has really brought to the forefront in our eyes, the issues of vaccine and um, and medication equity in the world and global health. And that's something that has been an ongoing issue that a lot of times kind of in our in our bubble of the U.S. we often don't think about. Um, and, um, you know, this isn't a, a political podcast, so I think maybe not going into depth about that, but um, but just the fact that it's kind of brought it to the forefront in our minds to start thinking about. Um, what it means to be equitable throughout the world um, in terms of vaccine and medication and how politics and finances and, and culture plays into that. Excellent points. And again, we will stay tuned for my next endeavor, which may be a political podcast, Carrie, and you'll be uh, my first guest. Alex? Yeah. One other thought is that I think COVID has also um, highlighted to me why global health is so important. It's certainly not the first time that travelers have spread a infectious disease internationally, but I think that we have learned how small our world really is by how quickly this disease spread across the entire planet. And I think this gives us lessons going forward on why it's important to think about um, health crises and attend health crises in other countries um, to perhaps contain them earlier.